All right, so today we are continuing the Kingdom of God series and transitioning from chapter 3, which was 12 messages, to chapter 4, which will probably be about 12 messages or so, maybe 15. It's hard to say. Uh, I'm calling chapter 4, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and uh, or what you uh, messages of the Bible that you may be missing. Uh, that should become clear by the end of today's message. We uh, have adopted in modern Bible-believing circles certain ideas about how to interpret the Bible that are causing us to miss, miss most of the important issues in the Bible. And I, most is not a word chosen lightly. I would actually say we are missing in many ways the majority of biblical uh, issues when we study the Bible because of ideas we have about how to study the Bible. And so that's what we're going to try to get into in chapter 4. I'm going to introduce you to the concepts of word pictures, which is also called biblical imagery. And uh, I especially want to introduce you today to the fact that word pictures are repeating themes in the Bible. So there are things like mountains, for instance, that mean things all the way through the Bible. Uh, there are rivers that mean things and trees and so forth. And so you want to, when you're studying biblical word pictures, you want to see them in light of the entire Bible and an entire theme. Uh, for instance, just to give an example, wells. You know, there was a, a well in the Garden of Eden, and, uh, 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 symbolically, and that, uh, you know, many of the patriarchs found their wives at wells, and Jesus sat at a well and taught uh, an adulterous woman how to be married to the true husband, and and so forth. And uh, so, uh, you know, so when you read about a well in a particular story, if you're sort of equipped to say, okay, how how are wells used throughout the Bible? You know, some people don't realize that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac was just as important as Abraham and Jacob. And he primarily unstopped wells. That was his main ministry, among others. So, and he's a great type of Christ in the Bible. So we're going to kind of introduce you to things like word pictures, uh, historical narrative, types, and case laws. And those are all things that the modern Bible-believing Christians simply ignore or don't know about, or in some cases actually teach that you shouldn't. Uh, you use those when you're studying. And we're going to look at kind of a little bit at how that happened and so forth. So our theme verse, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's important to keep focused that uh, today we have kind of a pie in the sky, the otherworldly idea of the kingdom of God. But in the Bible, the kingdom of God is something here, now, and on the earth. So, uh, <clears throat> and we as Christians can't aim for the right things in our Christian life if we don't understand the central message of the Bible, the kingdom of God. That's what chapter one was about. In chapter two, we looked at 12 statements that provided a comprehensive view of the kingdom. Those are on the podcast at, at gcfdayton.org. Um, chapter three, we looked at major themes of the Bible, 12 of them listed there in Roman numeral 2C. And today, again, we're going to introduce the repeating, the idea of repeating biblical pictures. Um, now, 
In order to do this, I want to uh, talk about forgotten biblical hermeneutical principles or keys. And, uh, hermeneutics is is a, a word you'll you'll study in the theology class, I believe. Uh, you'd certainly study it if you went to any Bible school or anything like that. But it comes from the name of the Greek mythological god Hermes, who was the messenger. And the etymology of it was that God sent his word by his prophets in the Old Testament, his apostles in the New Testament, and God anointed his apostles of the New Testament to be the true interpreters of both the prophets and their fellow apostles. And so in the New Testament, the veil of, uh, in Christ, the veil to understanding the scriptures is lifted in the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, by the writings of the apostles, so that we can see the message of Christ from Genesis to Revelation, so that we can see the message of Christ in the whole Bible. And uh, this is an important, I'm going to read a definition here, and, it's an, and I'm going to bring out some distinctions. You might, this is a little different definition than you would hear in Bible schools today in some important nuances. Uh, one is, of course, we already said it's derived from the Greek mythological god Hermes. It is the, it's the systematic or the scientific study of the principles that were employed by the apostles as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to interpret the prophets, that is the Hebrew scriptures, and to write or pen the apostolic writings, which is the New Testament. And thus, it's the principles of how to interpret sacred scripture. Now, that comes from, uh, uh, that definition comes a little bit from uh, uh, a Catholic theological encyclopedia that I use. And, and there's sometimes a little bit of a discrepancy or difference between uh, some Protestant hermeneutics and Catholic hermeneutics. And in some, in, in one in many cases, the Protestants are right about certain issues. Catholics are right about other issues. And the issue that's important here is that God is eternal, and the nature of God is eternal, and all Scripture is God-breathed, therefore comes out of the nature of God. So uh, it's not, uh, it's not uh, the Word first and then God. It's, it's God first who wrote the Word. And as the apostles uh, wrote the New Testament, they are writing uh, about Jesus Christ, but the full revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Okay, so, um, you know, what, uh, what we're actually looking at is, uh, there's the, and the, the reason that idea is important is um, there's an idea today that you can't call something a word picture or you can't say that it's an historical narrative, nor can you draw teaching or principle from it unless it's a specific one the apostles applied to Jesus instead of using the principles that they that they used to apply to the Old Testament. And that's really kind of an important distinction. Um, they gave us kind of the key of how to see the, the how to see the historical narrative of Scripture in Christ, but they didn't give us every possible example. But we, if we use their methodologies, we can get every possible example. And there's this idea that's it's kind of similar to there's actually a particular Christian denomination called the Church of Christ Non Instrumental, 
And because they're so afraid to make an error, they have this idea of you can't do anything that's not specifically endorsed by a specific scripture of the New Testament. Therefore, we can't worship God with instruments because the only instrument mentioned in the New Testament is the last trumpet. And uh, therefore, all the Psalms that tell us to praise God with stringed instruments and woodwinds and, and you know, basically the four major groups of instruments are covered all throughout the Old Testament, but we can't work. That's the Old Testament. <laughs> and it just kind of becomes a crazy way of interpreting Bible, which, re, which basically rips the heart and message out of the Bible. So let's, let's get into this a little bit. Um, when you're, a couple verses that would just kind of help us understand the importance of, uh, of hermeneutics is this. Um, Second uh, Timothy two fifteen, Paul says, "Be diligent." Now, um, this is one of among a very few cases where the ESV uh, translation stinks. Normally, the ESV is a very good translation, but the ESV there says, "Do your best." Well, if you literally took "do your best," that's probably a good translation. The problem is, we have a connotation. Uh, in our culture of, of doing my best means I'm not really going to do it. <laughs> you know, uh, people, I always know when I tell somebody something pastorally and they say, I'm doing my best and I, I'm trying, that means I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, because, you know, like Yoda taught, there's, there's no try, there's just do. And, uh, either you will or you won't. And, uh, uh, but, so do your best, uh, unfortunately, has some connotations in our culture that, that are probably not as strong as they need to be. Uh, be diligent, you know, fastidious. Be intense about it. Be intentional to present yourself approved to God as a workman, not a sluggard, not an occasional dabbler, uh, not not uh, when I can get around to it once in a while. Be a workman uh, approved by God who does not need to be ashamed because you can accurately handle the word of truth. And you have to ask yourself, does that describe my approach to, to studying Scripture? Do I put any work in it? Do I ever read it when it's I'm tired and I would rather uh, relax and watch a movie? Do I press on for another hour of study? You know, uh, have I made a systematic study of it? Have I been comprehensive? Ha am I thorough? Second um, Peter three fifteen and sixteen, I I love because it says, "In regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, that is epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand." This is a really key verse which the untaught and the unstable distort. You want to know something? People who are not that stable in their Christian walk are not good interpreters of, Christ of Scripture. Because actually godly, holy character leads to understanding Scripture rightly. And in fact, there's all kinds of tie-ins through the Scripture. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're faithful with the use of unrighteous mammon, you know, you have to be faithful with your finances to do what God wants you to do if you're going to have the true insights in the Scripture. And I'm not, you know, like, I'm not just talking about tithing. 
but I'm talking about living debt-free and all the things God wants you to do with your finances. Is he the Lord of your pocketbook? And that has a direct correlation to what kind of real insight you'll have with Scripture. So the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Now, this is important because what Peter is saying is that he already knows that Paul's writings are Holy Scripture. Long before an official canonical list was published, uh, what they did in, in the in the councils of the fourth century, when they kind of officialized which twenty-seven books of the of the uh, Bible they were going to consider as canon, is just all they did was certify what the church had always believed, practiced, and taught from the times of the apostles. That's very important if you study anything on the history of how the canon of the New Testament came to be. So even in Paul's own lifetime. The apostles knew that their fellow apostles' writings were scripture. And therefore, as Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead you and guide you into all the truth. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, comes, he shall teach you all things and bring into your remembrance all things I've taught you. The Holy Spirit was very active in causing the Gospels to be right, in causing the epistles to be the true way of an, un, in understanding the Gospels and the entire canon of the Old Testament and the prophets. So this is, this is really important. Now, since we're studying hermeneutics, I want to talk a little bit about some principles that, that any Bible-believing Christians would agree on before I kind of begin to introduce us to how some wrong interpretive principles have robbed us. So one thing that almost any Bible-believing Christian would agree with is that Christ is the central theme of all Scripture. Because I do want to emphasize that um, we have some common ground with anyone who would be what would be called a fundamentalist or that would see Scripture as inerrant or without error, as infallible. Okay, um, that's important. We share that common ground, but it's almost as if we built a, a house on the same on a certain same foundation, and then uh, from there completely took different turns. And that's what we'll see on the back side of this outline. So, but finishing up the first side of the outline, one Christ is the central theme of all Scripture. Many scriptures bring this out. A couple of my favorites. Uh, John 5.39, which is the basis of my Search the Scripture series. You search the Scriptures, search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, which according to the Bible's definition of eternal life is a type of knowing God. It's not uh, going to heaven. It's not otherworldly. It's something you either have in you and you are or you're not. Eternal life is that you might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Those who are born of the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, are the sons of God. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Eternal life is not about going to heaven. Heaven is a consequence of living in eternal life now. And either you're in love with God and you're tracking with God or so forth, or you won't, you're really... You you know, there's thousands of Christians who go to church every week who, if you really study it out biblical, whether they're really converted or not is quite questionable. 
if you don't really enjoy the Lord and his presence and pursuing him and the freedom and liberty of the sons of God now, what, you, won't, you won't like going to heaven. God would never force you to be there. So uh, you think you have in, in eternal life in the scriptures, but the scriptures testify, or the ESV says bear witness, pretty much means the same thing, I would think, about me. Luke 24, Jesus' famous speeches uh, to, to the, on the road to Emmaus and then the disciples in the upper room later in the same chapter about how all, the, the Moses and the prophets and the writings then the Psalms all pertain to him. I like this one, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. It, primarily, the Bible reveals that God spoke through the prophets in, in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament wrongly today. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not quite accurate. The Hebrew scriptures, because they contain a lot more than the Old Testament, uh, which Moses gave us, in the 19th chapter of Exodus. Uh, after he spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, people say, do you believe it's the last days? Of course I believe it's the last days. That's what Peter said in Acts 2. This is the last days. The last days started on the day of Pentecost. So, yes, we're in the last days. Um, maybe the last days are over with in, in, a certain, in most biblical senses of the word. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the whole scripture is about Jesus. A second important point is that scripture interprets scripture. And I'm just going to give us one obvious example, one of the easiest examples. In Matthew 5, 14 and 16, Jesus is using the word you, plural. He's like, if you wanted to be Southern about it. He'd be saying, y'all. <laughs> uh, fortunately, he probably didn't speak with a Southern accent. But he's saying, you all, all of you, are the light of the world. He's not saying, Terry, you're the light of the world. He's saying, you're all the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be broken. It cannot be hidden, I'm sorry. How many cities have just one individual candle? I went to this great city, population one. <laughs> That's kind of the radical individualism of our day. This has nothing to do with, with, he's not speaking at all to Christians who are not living in a covenantal community relationship under the lordship of Jesus Christ, living out their Christian faith. The word of God must always become incarnational, living it out in submission to one another, in service to one another, in love for one another. And uh, that's why the bowling is just as important as the worship and the 930 teaching. It's all, it's all how we live. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We're going to talk about cities later today. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a bushel or a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well, how do you do that? Should we go out and run out and do a bunch of good works? I'm all for whiz kids, kids rock, all the good things we do as a church. But he's actually saying, first, do it as a lampstand. 
A lampstand is where you recognize that one candle has limited power in, com in compared to putting seven or more, eight more candles on a, on a lampstand. That's what a lampstand is. So uh, going on, uh, in Revelation it says, Then I turned to see the voice of, of, that was speaking to me, and turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, this is just before he sends seven messages to the seven golden lampstands, that is, the seven churches of Asia Minor that the letter is addressed to. And then in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's a phrase from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Uh, it's also Daniel, chapter 4, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is that 3 or 4 of uh, Daniel? Um, and he remember how after the king threw them into the fire, they said, I see them standing in the midst of fire, and there's one with them like a son of man. Okay, so uh, that's always a reference to Christ. And so what th this verse is saying is that Christ is very active in the world. He's not just at the Father's right hand, but he's in the lampstands. He's in the midst of the lampstands. Uh, and as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are, are the messengers of the seven churches, uh, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lampstands are churches. So when we sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, you know, and all that stuff, he's, he's not saying, like, I'm going to be a goody two-shoes at school and get my homework done on time and everything like that and not get in any trouble. Uh, that might be all right, as long as you do it for the right godly motives and not just to be a goody two-shoes or some shallow motivation. But, uh, but more importantly, we're going to do this together. I'm going to let it shine by being in community enough to, to uh, you know, to have iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, uh, to have conflict, to, have, to learn how to resolve conflict, to learn how to take the conflicts of marriage and the conflicts of the church and make them the bridges of good relationships. Like I say, I never trust anyone I haven't fought with. And uh, if I haven't argued with you yet, then we're just starting. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's why I feel so close to Leah Gray, because she's uh, having her baby right as we speak, and they doing Pitocin on her this morning, I believe. And, uh, and we have some good fights. And uh, I told her when we first got started on this, with your giftedness and my giftedness, we're going to clash all the time. And I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> It'll be, <laughs> I remember having that conversation and, and she was like, Phew. she was actually glad because she goes, I, yeah, she goes, because I've been sensing we're going to fight a lot too. <laughs> and uh, I like people that you fight with. All right. So. That's, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture. Lampstands are churches, right? Now, a third principle that we'd all agree on is the Holy Spirit wrote, and therefore the Holy Spirit interprets Scripture. One of the crazy things we have today is everybody is their own little private interpreter of Scripture, and they don't seem to think it matters how holy the Holy Spirit has made them in terms of interpreting scripture, but untaught and unstable people distort scripture. 
If you're still fellowshipping bitterness and rebellion and addictions and so forth, you're going to be blind to a lot that the scripture is trying to say to you. Now, uh, and so what we have is just, you know, this proliferation of division and division and division and division because everything's a matter of each person's own private interpretation. Well, I'm not going to go into all the antidotes for that, but part of the antidote for that is to study historical theology and what has the church always taught and always believed? What happened at the first seven ecumenical councils in the first eight centuries? And what did the church affirm in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and so forth? All right, so let's flip over and get to uh, things that we wouldn't agree on uh, always in the evangelical circles today. And I'm going to call this the great mis misinterpretation. I couldn't fit the word the on the line, so, but it should say the great misinterpretation. And the, 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 um, the argument is between the words literal and literary. literary. Now, Martin Luther, uh, the great fountainhead of the Reformation, used a German word that basically should be translated literature, or we do a literary interpretation of Scripture. Uh, evangelicals, after the Civil War, introduced the idea of interpreting the, the Scripture literally. Now, that's because what happened in what was, became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy was there were two great attacks to the, to the Bible uh, that, that came uh, in, the, in the 1860s or thereabouts. One was called Darwinism and the belief that an evolution, which undermined the historical accuracy of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, well, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and uh, really, to be quite, and frankly, they lots of us, other things. In other words, uh, that coincided with an, another movement called Higher Criticism, which was a, G, a German theological uh, movement, and the founder of whom was a guy named Julius Well, Wellstein, Wellstein, Wellhausen. And uh, Wellhausen had a thing called the Documentary Hypothesis. But he basically claimed that, you know, Scripture wasn't really meant, written by Moses, but it evolved over time, and it was edited and changed, and there were redactors, and da-da-da-da-da. And so between these two uh, ideas that really overlapped each other was born what is today uh, the, the liberal wing of Protestantism, uh, which is really uh, sometimes called mainstream Protestantism. But the idea uh, dismissed the miracles of the Bible— such as the Sadducees did. It dis dismissed the actual historical accuracy of the resurrection. Uh, it did, uh, dismissed the, uh, the infallibility of Scripture. And if you study the Pharisees of Jesus' day uh, and the Sadducees, it was basically the ideas of the Sadducees, not the ideas of the Pharisees. And so uh, it... the. Being a Christian became very humanistically defined, and so it was about being good, in, but in some very nebulous, undefined way, because part of it was called antinomianism, so there was, there's no true 
definition of what goodness means, but somehow we know it means to serve our fellow neighbor. And it became about social welfare issues such as feeding the poor, clothing the poor, or so forth. And um, Sojourner's Magazine and so forth is an outgrowth of that mindset. So um, the, the, the fundamentalist reacted against that not by going back and looking at similar attacks to the faith in the second, third, and fourth centuries, but by coming up with a completely new modern way of interpreting these things. And so what was born was uh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism was a, was a response to the threat of modernism, but itself was a modernism. It began to be a brand new way of interpreting scripture that has never been done before. And it caught hold in the 1890s. Uh, it was many of the ideas of it uh, included dispensationalism and antinomianism, all of which we'll study in chapter 12 called Current Concepts that Conceal the Kingdom. Uh, what was called hyper premillennialism uh, was birthed at that time, and so forth. Now, many of the ideas are traceable to a guy named J.N. Darby, but largely they were popularized by guys named Schofield and Ryrie. And by the 1920s, the Schofield Study Bible, which had this whole way of interpreting Scripture, became the predominant best-selling study Bible in all Bible-believing Christianity. And it, can, it contained completely modern approaches to Scripture. Because it was basically, life is never good when you overreact. It was basically one reaction and an overreaction, neither of which were correct. And what, uh, in essence, uh, the mainstream liberal Protestantism and their Darwinism and their higher criticism became the, the, the ideas of the Sadducees, while evangelicalism and fundamentalism became the idea of the Pharisees. And the two movements completely overlap each other in their approach to God and Scripture, neither of which like Jesus when he came. And that's why I maintain that in our Bible-believing churches today, I don't believe Jesus would be welcome. I don't believe he is welcome. Now, this is pretty radical stuff. If you want to study it a little further, I recommend a book called Love God With All Your Mind. The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul by J.P. Moreland, and especially his chapter two, which he kind of discusses this history. But what one of the main ideas here, I'm going to try to get uh, give you and succinctly some of the main ideas that developed. One of the main ideas is because the liberals uh, didn't see the Bible as historically accurate, they and they didn't want to give up being Christian or whatever and throw the Bible out altogether, they said, well, what's important is the myths, the stories, the meaning of them. It's not important whether there was an Abraham. It's just important that we, what we can learn by Abraham. We, all, we know there's no real Adam and Eve, but, it's imp but we can learn some things from them about man. So uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals rightly said, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus quoted from... Uh, uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So therefore, if you don't believe that Genesis 1 and 2 are historically accurate, you don't believe Jesus is historically accurate. 
You believe he's not the son of God. He's full of errors. Now, what what happened was, um, as, as Moreland brings out very well in his book, is because most of the liberal ideas uh, were coming from universities, such as the formerly conservative biblical universities of Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard in this country, Yale, Princeton, the part of the overreaction was an, an anti-intellectualism that, that said, well, if you study too much, you'll, you'll get deceived with all these people. You bring your heart to church, not your head. So they began to ask people to leave their heads and their shoes in the lobby. Well, in the Oriental churches, they left their shoes and just in the American churches, just their heads. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they basically said, it's, it's all about what you feel, right? Now, when you are anti-intellectual, one of the things you, that develops is you're not accurate with your terminology, so an idea developed that was kind of stabbing in the dark at the right idea, but missed the point altogether, called literalism, or literal interpretation of the Bible. And so they basically said, it's important that we interpret the Bible literally. When what should have been said, it's as important that we see that it's historically accurate. Do you see the difference? Uh, because in that historical accuracy... God is so sovereign that he can still write a story. And so we can still talk about the story of the Exodus. We can still talk about the story of the, of the Garden of Eden, as long as we realize it's an historically accurate story. Does that make sense? But we don't have to go to an overreaction that says, any literary devices and any literary metaphors and any richness of language must be thrown out because that's what the liberals do. That became like a fighting fundamentalist uh, uh, retreat that, was, that basically gutted the scriptures from the people of God. So, um, you know, I have there in C C1, the tragic overreaction. Uh, Anti-intellectualism gave birth to inaccuracy. Misinterpretation by dismissing historical narrative, word pictures, including historical... Par the problem is if you don't have word pictures, you, then you don't see... You think of Jesus as this new historical hiccup who uses parables as like some new invention. But he's using the same parables that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Moses and Jeremiah used. And he's standing on the shoulders of every prophet and every, uh, er, all the patriarchs, and he's continuing their ministry and their message and bringing even greater clarity to what they were always saying. Now, part of this is, became a thing called antinomianism, and antinomianism is the idea that because we're not saved by law, we're saved by grace, we therefore don't have to live under the law, and the law becomes irrelevant. And the Bible says sin is lawlessness. Jesus said 
uh, don't think I came to abolish the law, but I came to put it into force. In other words, I came to put it, give you power to put it into force to live it. No, everyone has been trying to do it by their own strength, but they couldn't. But I came to give you the power to do it. I didn't give you the power to say, okay, thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't matter anymore. And we're now that we're in the spirit, as long as I kind of feel good about it and, and, and commit adultery in the spirit and everything, it's still good. And that's like what modernists believe, you know, the modern evangelical church. They surveyed recently uh, uh, single, single evangelical people who say they go to a Bible-believing fundamentalist conservative church and um, 85% believed it's okay to have sex before you're married. The numbers were like astounding. Like it was, it was I, I don't know if I got this 85 and the 60. One of them was 65% were actually doing it and 85% believed it was okay or vice versa. But I'm like, what? In what Bible are you reading? You're claiming the Bible is the word of God but it's just, but it doesn't, because we're in, that we're not under law, we're under grace, we can choose whatever the hell we want. That's called Gnosticism. That was a heresy in the early church. I can't just do whatever I want. If I'm led by the Spirit, I'll actually fulfill the law. Does that make sense? I hope you're following me. Sorry for my strong language, but it's a hellish doctrine. It's Hell is a good word in the Bible. Jesus used it more than anyone else. It's a very good word. It's that That is a doctrine from hell. It's not, that's not just uh, some do, abstract doctrine. It's a doctrine anointed by demonic spirits. You can't do whatever the H you want. So, when they, you know, when they dis, and then of course when they dismiss the law, they therefore dismiss what's called the case laws. So most Christians, when they're reading Psalm one nineteen and in you know other places, and they come across words like statutes and ordinances, they don't know what that means because those are modern translations. Actually, the, it's interesting. There's a new translation called the New English Translation, not that new, but and they translate it case laws because that's what they are. They're case laws. If you don't know what case laws are, see Chris after church. He'll explain case laws, and and it's something I'm sure he probably has kind of a love-hate relationship with because he studied thousands of case laws until he can't stand them anymore, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, but but how you can't be a lawyer if you don't study case laws, nor can you know the Word of God if you don't study the case laws. Now, all of this led to this kind of idea that our spiritual life is one thing and our real life is another. And that's why you, you have, uh, I don't know what the percentages are exactly, but I believe most Christians make it to church about 40 out of 52 Sundays a year, although we're still to keep holy the Lord's day, which is the, which is the first day of the week in the New Testament. There's, I don't want to get into all that, but that is still the Sabbath. Because Jesus rose on the first day. He appeared seven times on the first day, Pentecost, et cetera, et cetera. Pentecost was on the first day of the week. And the early Christians met on the first day of the week. 
and uh, and they it was the apostles' understanding that the Sabbath has become the Lord's day. That's what John is saying when he says, "I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day." Every Christian knew he meant, even though they exiled me to this Isle Patmos. I, I gathered in the spirit with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because if I had physically been able to, I would have been up early and spending time with them and listening to Pastor Greg's 930 message, <laughs> you know, and uh, worshiping the Lord and taking communion and so forth. Now, um, what, you know, what J.P. Moreland brings out really well, and I hope you can follow the kind of the logical connections but it became, uh, when you take away the case laws, when you take away the word pictures, when you take away historical narrative, you are reducing the scriptures over and over and over, and our Christianity applies mostly to things that aren't that relevant. So, it, you know, we don't have to tithe anymore, nor do we have to do all the other things the Bible says to do with our money. But you know, the tithe is is representative, it's the the 10% first fruits principle, the firstborn, all of it, the tithe is your way of saying, God, all my life is yours. It's a fundamental acknowledgement that God is your Lord and you're not your Lord. All my life is yours. And I give my 10% of my gross income to tell you that it's you that created me in the first place, that you gave me a job in the first place, that you gave me the ability to keep a job in the first place, and that you are the one that strengthens me every day to enjoy this job and to and to be frugal and to, to represent Christ well on it. And all the rest of the money is yours too. So you can't just, like, you hear it all the time. People say, the 10% is the Lord's and the 90% is yours. To do. No, it's not. The 90% is the Lord's too. The 10% is representative of the whole, and you need to do what God wants you to do with the 90%. If he wants you to send your kids to the best school, send your kids to the best school. You know, if he wants you to, to uh, be more frugal and waste less money on hobbies and, and things that aren't really going to bring any eternal return, begin to invest the rest of your life in the kingdom. Build a Christian library. I beg of you, invest in the kingdom. Give offerings to other Christian causes. One of the things that I would encourage you to do, we have a church where we have a lot of people under 35 years old. Do you know that if you started investing your money wisely right now and gave at least 10% of your money to long-term savings, you could probably by the age of 55 or 60 decide whether you want to work at a at uh, the, you're in your current vocation, or whether you just wanted to go full-time uh, serving the church at your own expense. You really could. You could do Kids Rock full-time, Wiz Kids full-time, Wright State Ministry full-time, uh, all the other ministries I have in mind. Uh, you could go be a part of some other ministry that, uh, that goes to this country or that country because you could live off your investments the rest of your life. And you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. You could decide more fully what you want to do in terms of your vocational work ethic and zero in on whatever God wants you to do, which may be to continue in the vocation you're in. Or maybe fine-tune in and tweak it so it's more directly serving people. Use your law skills to serve, to, you know, to serve uh, the kingdom more fully, etc., do you see what I'm saying? So it's not that the 90% is yours to squander. 
It's yours to invest in, in, in steward in, in God's kingdom. So that's just one example of this. So what, what this has all led to is uh, Western culture has become the most secularized culture in the history of the Christian church. For 2,000 years, we have never had a culture that, that the word of God and the things of God were so separated from what everybody thinks everyday life is about. Because we lost the main messages of the Bible, we lost the culture. I once did a six-hour message on this subject called the failure of Protestant Christianity. <laughs> I spoke for six and a half hours but uh, to a group of leaders. We did take one break in the middle. For, um, so here's an example. I, I'm almost out of time. I am out of time. So Genesis 24, circle that underline it, highlight it, read it for yourself this week. But it's not just a nice story. See, the liberals would say it's a nice fictional story. Conservatives would say we just need to only know what it literally says. But a proper interpretation is that it's a historical narrative, it's accurate in its history, and it's a giant word picture of the entire Bible. Abraham is a symbol of the father. Isaac is a symbol of the son. Abraham sends his servant, the Holy Spirit, who makes a covenant with him, which is symbolic of the eternal covenant we taught on in the covenant part of this. And he says, put your hand under my thigh, which means more graphic. Uh, and he says, "Make go and get a bride. He sends him to a distant land because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit God the Father sent the Holy Spirit into a distant land called the world to bring back a bride for his son. And he loaded that servant down with gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to woo the bride. And he doesn't want the bride to be taken from the kingdoms of this world, meaning you have to become a covenant person of God if you're going to be the bride. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord. And I'm a Christian when it's going well, and I'm not a Christian when it's not going well, and I want to keep some of my favorite sins. You have to be brought out of that culture into a new kingdom culture. In Genesis 24, you could read it, and then you've read the whole Bible <laughs> in one chapter. So... We'll get started next week with some other biblical imagery in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're going to look at things like sanctuary, temple, garden, city, nation, seed, fruit, trees, rivers, and so forth. And what I want you to start thinking about is that these things are, you know, there's a river of life in, in Revelation 21 and 22, and there's four rivers in the garden, and there's lots of rivers in between because they mean something very important. There's wells. There's mountains, there's trees. Every tree brings forth fruit after its own kind. There's a tree of life in the garden, and there's a tree of life in Revelation. And before we got all these retreatist ideas, when, when the average Christian read the book of Revelation, they used to know what it meant. And it's actually not about the end times, and it's not that wacky. Amen.